If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From ribbons, bonnets and ball gowns to Mr Darcy's see-through shirt, the works of Jane Austen have long sparked the imagination of fashion-minded readers and audiences. But what did the author herself actually wear? Austen has often been accused of dowdiness. But as Hilary Davidson, the author of a new book, Jane Austen's Wardrobe, reveals, this is actually far from the truth. In today's podcast, Hilary takes Lauren Good on a tour through the wardrobe of the renowned writer, from the clothes she wore behind closed doors to her most treasured jewellery. Hi, Hilary. Thank you for speaking on the podcast. We're talking about your new book, Jane Austen's Wardrobe, which you describe as the first ever systematic delve into Austen's clothing using her surviving letters. First of all, why should we be talking about what Austen wore? That's a good question. You know, why Why should we care what Jane Austen wore? And I think for Jane Austen, it's an interesting way into knowing her life. There's a lot about her life that we don't know, and she's one of the great female authors. And so to look at how she dressed, this thing that she, like all of us, had to do every single day, it tells us about her time, about her cultures, and also about her concern. You know, it took a lot of Jane Austen's time and thought about her clothing. So it's a way into understanding the life of this remarkable woman from a different angle. And before we dive into the elements of Austen's wardrobe, if our listener was a woman of the gentry class in Georgian Britain, could you please take us through a step-by-step process of the garments that they would be dressing in each morning? Absolutely. So first of all, if you were naked, which you probably weren't when you get up in the morning, you take off your nightdress and you put on a shift or chemise, which is a kind of like a tunic garment that's made of linen. And it's the first thing that goes on next to the body. So it protects the clothes from the body and it's like a washable first layer. And next you would put on a pair of stays or you might be calling them the corset, which is a slightly newfangled word that's coming in from France at the time. Then over your lower half, you would put on one or more petticoats, depending on the time of year and how hot it was and what you were dressing for. But that kind of kept you warm and covered up the lower half. So once you've got that base on, then you put a gown over the top. And if this is for day wear, it's probably got long sleeve and a slightly higher neck. And if you're going out in the evening, it would have shorter sleeves and, you know, show off a lot more of your décolletage. And then over the top of that, you would be putting on any number of sort of accessories and outerwear, again, depending on the season and where you were going. So you might have a pelisse, which is a kind of a coat dress if you're going visiting, and it could be in anything from light muslin to a heavy wool lined with fur. You would put a cap and a bonnet on your head to go out in 
all sorts of kinds of styles. There's fabulous amounts of different headwear in the Regency period. You would probably be, if you're exposing your skin to daylight, you would be covering up your chest with a, a fichu or a neck handkerchief. You'd be adding gloves on your hands. Down at your feet, you would be wearing stockings that go to and just above the knee, and then shoes with a flat heel. So the heel disappears at the end of the 1790s, and we don't see it again till the mid-19th century. Your gown is almost certainly going to have the high waist that is so characteristic of fashions at the time. And if it's quite cold, you could then add a cloak on top of that. You might have a parasol or umbrella, a little handbag called a reticule, and add some jewellery and you're ready to go. You instruct your readers to please open these pages as you would pull open drawers in your book. So I thought we could do the same thing. Let's start, as you do, with Austen's gowns. What sort of fabrics would these have been made of? Well, in the Regency period, there's really only four fibres that a gown could be made of. This is well before the invention of synthetics. So all of Austen's gowns are going to be made of cotton, linen, silk, or wool. But you can achieve an incredible amount with those fibres depending on how you weave them and how thick or thin they are. So her gowns kind of run that gamut across the fibres and she uses the fibres at different times as well. So silk is generally for the evening. And although we're very used to cotton now, the use of cotton for outer gowns is actually quite new in the Regency period. It's something that had been imported from India originally and it's starting to be manufactured in Britain. So we think of it as like, oh, it's, you know, it's just cotton, it's quite quotidian and, and easy, but it was sort of a new wonder fabric for for consumers like Austin. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. And do we know what sort of colours Austin would have worn? What appears across the letters, and I mean, I should say as well, we've only got about probably 5% of the total letters that she wrote in her lifetime remaining. So we get this sort of tiny glimpse into her wardrobe. The The colours match colours that were fashionable in the Regency period, which tended to be sort of light and pretty overall, but with some intense ones as well. So across the, the letters, we see gowns in white, yellow. She seemed to have liked pink. She bought a pink gown and pink shoes. She has a couple of brown dresses. She's got green shoes. So I'm going to assume she had something to match there that maybe hasn't survived. A couple of blue things. Blue, there's a slight tendency towards blue. And then she does have some black things as well that she wears not just for mourning after a family member dies, but also in the evening. How sustainable were the attitudes to fashion at this time? Would Austin have altered clothes at all? Regency fashion is incredibly sustainable and we could actually learn a lot of lessons from their attitudes towards clothes. So a lot of it is based on the expense of textiles. They valued 
cloth in a way that we have totally forgotten, given how disposable cloth is now. So when you had something like a gown, you made it last as long as possible, even if you had some money. So Austin is constantly altering her clothing. And the letters are often between her and her beloved sister, Cassandra. They had very similar items in their wardrobe. So they kind of have conversations about what are you doing to your dress? Oh, no, I tried this on mine and it didn't work. And she dyes things, she changes the neckline, she adds different trimmings. And she also has kind of like a hierarchy of wear. So once an outer dress has sort of become quite used, she talks about turning it into a petticoat, which at this point means any sort of skirt or underskirt that went under a gown. So when things were sort of used up a little bit, they got turned into another purpose. And this happened all the way down the hierarchy. If you had an old shift, for example, that got worn out, you could give it to the poor, you could cut it up and use the good bits for smaller things. And even once you reach the end of that, you'd give that linen to the rag and bone man and it would be made into paper. So in a sense, Austen's letters and her books are written on the last vestiges of the Regency textile recycling system, which I really love. And how did the cuts of dresses change as Austen's life progressed? Well, Jane Austen was born in 1775. And at this point, what we think of as classic 18th century fashion is in full swing, where women's torsos are kind of like an inverted V-shape and the waistline is somewhere with near the natural waist with very full skirts. And in about 1794, so just before she turns 20, waistlines start to rise quite rapidly. And by about 1796, they've almost settled right underneath the bust in the way that would become the characteristic Regency style. Now we call this the Empire Line after Napoleon's first empire, but actually that name wasn't given to a high waistline until about 1907, so over 100 years later. And once the waistline reached under the bust, it stayed there till sort of the late 18-teens. Jane Austen died in 1817, and this is about the time that that high waistline starts to fluctuate, and it's going to start sort of dropping back down to nearer to the natural waistline by about 1820, 1821. But this means that for most of her adult life, the waistline was fairly similar, and what distinguished the kind of the cut of gowns was also the shape of the skirt, whether it was straight or whether it started to bell out and become a little bit wider at the bottom, which happens in the early 1810s. And then there's also kind of nuances of the cut of the bosom, the cut of the sleeves, but the sort of the structure of the gown, they experimented, but it stayed roughly the same for about those 25 years. Now let's move on to the next section of Austen's wardrobe, the band box, hats, caps and bonnets. Firstly, what sort of headwear would the writer have used for daily life? Well, one of the letters that does survive tells us really clearly what Jane Austen did about this. She took to wearing caps indoors at about the age of 25. And this was a little bit early. Society was quite ruthless about women's ageing and they thought that women should sort of cover up rapidly the older they got till they got, you know, really old at about 45 or 50. And part of that was was sort of wearing caps in the daytime. So when Austen starts at 25, she says quite explicitly, I've taken to wearing caps because it saves me a great deal of trouble as to hairdressing. I can put my hair up, I cover it with a cap, 
I'm done for the day, which I think is something we can we can relate to. And so younger women might have their hair uncovered in the house, but caps also provided a little bit of warmth. We have to remember that there's no central heating, that these houses are lit only by fires and could often be quite cold. And then when you leave the house, you put sort of something else on top of that. So bonnets and other hats could go on top of your cap. And then on the other side of the spectrum, what was the most luxurious headwear in Austin's wardrobe? Well, hats and headwear were a fantastic kind of part of the body to indulge in fashion because gowns require a lot of investment in fabric and fit, but headwear, you know, your head stays pretty much the same shape and you can add things to hats and alter them and change them and keep up with fashion. So the most, she she has some caps and hats made out of beautiful fabrics. She's got a black velvet cap in 1798 and there's certainly records of a few white satin and lace caps, a couple that she bought in London. And in one of the few times that she gives us a cost for a cap, one that she buys in London in 1813 costs £1.16. shillings, And to give you a kind of an idea of, of where that sits in the Regency finances, you could buy a whole dress for that. So you, your hats could be as expensive as your as your dress. And that's quite an investment for Jane Austen. So It's one of those purchases where we start to see her delight in clothes, which is something that's really come through. She likes pretty things and isn't, when she's got the money, she'll splurge a bit. Then we move to the shelves where shawls, tippets, cloaks and shoes are stored. Let's start with outerwear. A tippet might be an unfamiliar word to a lot of our listeners. What was this? A tippet was a kind of a long, thin fur or wool kind of scarf. More often they were made out of fur and then you sort of wrapped them around your neck in various combinations. The word tippet and the garment does stay in fashionable use, but people may be more familiar with it from the later 19th century where it becomes a kind of a cape form. But in the Regency period, it's still long and skinny. And do we have any idea of what Austin's might have looked like? Alas, we don't. In the same way that she talks about her boa, which I think is something that's more familiar to us from feather boas. These were also often made out of fur and she had one that seems to be quite large. So that's the only clue that we have that perhaps it was made of a very fluffy and voluminous material. But alas, we don't have those same clues for her tippet. And a shawl is one of two surviving garments of Austin's wardrobe. What does this piece of clothing tell us about her? The muslin shawl that's held at Jane Austen's house and reputed to have belonged to her is a beautiful example of many fashion trends that are happening in the Regency. First of all, it is made of white cotton muslin, which was the fabric of choice and, in a sense, the defining fabric of the Regency period. The fact that it's a shawl also bespeaks the influence of Kashmiri shawls, which have come in from India and have become a highly desirable fashion accessory. And they are starting to, competition with that has stimulated British manufacture in Scotland and northern English towns. And then it's also got a lot of very fine embroidery on it. Family 
tradition says that Jane Austen embroidered it herself. And I'm not so sure because it's actually not as fine as the example we definitely have of Austen's own embroidery. She was a really good needlewoman and the embroidery on this shawl isn't as good as she could do, which is you know, the idea of Jane Austen as highly skilled needlewoman isn't perhaps the one that first springs to mind. And it's sort of, it's it's light and delicate and would wrap around dresses very easily. So it kind of combines a number of distinctive and important trends for the period in which Austen was living in the one garment. And let's move on to shoes. What sort of shoes would Austen have worn for varying occasions? Well, for everyday wear, women wore kind of just plain leather shoes. They were in the style that we we call a pump now, so just sort of open and slightly pointy at the toe, like a ballet slipper really, like the ballet slipper style that we have. And if you were going outside, you could wear little half boots that reach the ankle and these could be in stout leather or they could be in delicate lilac-coloured kid or fabric as well. And for evening, she would have worn flat dancing slippers in satin, probably white to go with the predominance of white dresses for evening. And we do know that she wore something called patterns, which is P-A-T-T-E-N-S with no R, on long walks. She liked to walk a lot. And a pattern is a kind of like a raised outer footwear. So it's got an iron ring at the bottom attached to a wooden sole. And you put them on over your ordinary walking shoes of leather and strapped them on and they took you, they raised you out of the mud and the horse manure and the dust when you went walking and helped to protect your footwear. And one of her nieces recalls Cassandra and Austen going for walks in patterns. So although we don't have a record of that in her letters, it's from other people's observation that we know that she definitely wore those. Let's move from the wardrobe to the dressing table. What sort of jewellery did Austen have? The jewellery is the strongest surviving items that we have, that we know belonged to Jane Austen. So jewellery also survives the passage of time a lot better. Clothing, because it is so reusable and adaptable and everything wants to attack it, like moisture and moths and kids with scissors and dress-ups. So these beautiful jewellery items that we have of hers are one of the strongest ways of sort of seeing her taste. So what survives of Austen's jewellery wardrobe is a topaz cross given to her by her little brother Charles, the gold chain that it was worn with, both of which were immortalised in Mansfield Park. We have turquoise bead bracelet, a turquoise ring that has received a lot of attention a few years ago when it was sold at auction and an export ban was placed on it to stop it being taken out of the country. And we have a record of a watch as well amongst Cassandra's will that her brother Henry had given to her and then Jane gave to Cassandra and then Cassandra bequeathed on. But we don't know where that survives, but the other jewellery items are still at Jane Austen's house and can be seen today. And a passage I found particularly strange was Austen detailing to her sister Cassandra in a letter from 1799 the fake fruit and flowers she had found to adorn their hats with in what she refers to as the cheap shop. This seems so far from what we do today. Could you please elaborate more on why this was the fashion? The fruits and flowers that Jane Austen is buying in the late 1790s are part of this ability to decorate headwear that was 
sort of markers of fashionability. So a lot of headwear would be kind of like a base that then you added decorations to, and you could change them really easily. Sometimes women just pinned things on rather than sewing them. So when she's going looking for basically, you know, fake decorations, it's to decorate headwear. And it means that, you know, if you had, say, a pink gown and a white satin cap, you could add pink flowers to it and accessorize it with that. And then next time you wore the hat with a blue gown, you could change the flowers there as well. She is quite funny in the passage later on about thinking it's more natural to have flowers growing out of your head than fruit, which is, is a good observation. But it's, a, it's just about the kind of the quirks of fashion and adding flair to one's head. We've talked about a wide variety of the pieces that you might have found in Austen's wardrobe, but do we know which piece Austen would have held most dear? Well, I like to think that of the pieces we can know about, it would be the Topaz Cross, because she and Cassandra were each given one by their little brother Charles, who was in the Navy. And he'd taken a prize in the Navy, which means they'd captured another ship and all of the officers get a kind of a part share of that. So basically he'd, he'd had a windfall and he spent some of it on gifts for his only two sisters. And so there's a real kind of sentimental, personal connection there. And these crosses were also kept throughout Cassandra's life. She dies in, in the 1840s. So they clearly have sentimental value there. And then the way that Austen writes about them in Mansfield Park Fanny Price's brother, William, who's also in, I think he's in the merchant service, he gives her a topaz cross and the feelings that are associated with it and this kind of gift of familial love that Austen writes about in Mansfield Park, I like to think that that reflects her own feelings and Cassandra's feelings about this very sweet gift from their brother. And finally, Hilary, how does our study of the clothes Austen would have worn challenge our contemporary perceptions of her, both as a woman and a writer? I think there's been a lot of work done recently that challenges, I suppose, a prevailing idea of Austen as this kind of rural, cloistered, spinster, you know, slightly dowdy, dear Aunt Jane scribbling away in the corner and, you know, producing remarkable novels. But when you look at her her life, she had actually remarkable connections with the, the big events of their day and, you know, family connections that spanned literally half the globe. So for me, looking at her wardrobe is another way of saying she was a woman of her time and she knew about fashion and she enjoyed fashion, that there's, this isn't a dowdy, frumpy woman just sort of, you know, sitting at home. She liked nice Nice clothes. She delighted in pretty ones, but she could also be vexed and a bit tired by the process of choosing and getting them, which again, I think is something that we can relate to today. And it rounds out our sense of Austen as a person and this life that she lived that generated and fed into her immortal novels that so accurately reflect her life and times. So it really is another way to understand her life and where she came from and who she was as a person beyond her incredible words. Hilary Davidson is the author of Jane Austen's Wardrobe. You can read more about Austen and listen to more podcasts on her life on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.